This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. If you're watching this on video, you might notice a new background, which I'll talk about later. I don't want to waste anybody's time that doesn't care, so I'll save that to the end. And also, I will be inviting any new contributors or writers who want to join the site. And I want to talk about that later on as well. But once again, I don't want to waste anybody's time that doesn't care about that. So let's jump into what's been going on, and I'll swing back to that at the end. First up, Alex just did a write-up of OpenLara, which is a project that aims to reverse engineer and open source the Tomb Raider engine. And people have already taken that and started porting it to Game Boy Advance, 3DO, and the Jaguar. Modern Vintage Gamer recently did a very awesome video on the Game Boy Advance version, and I've been following different developers' Twitter accounts to see their progress on Jaguar and 3DO. And overall, it is an amazing dev project that I'm very excited to see where it progresses. Now, respectfully, I do want to make sure that I put this into perspective for non-devs. This doesn't automatically mean that you're going to see a fully working, completed port of Tomb Raider to every platform that you love. It's more of a proof-of-concept thing and allows it uh, allows developers to kind of take a look at different platforms and take an existing engine and move it over to it. So kind of like porting Doom to everything. You wouldn't necessarily want to play Doom on your refrigerator's touchpad, but the proof of concept makes it awesome and other people might learn from it. And by saying that, I am not trying to take away from any of the work any of the awesome devs have put into this. I just want to make sure that people don't misunderstand and think that suddenly there's a perfect port of Tomb Raider available on all platforms. However, if you are a developer, this is incredibly exciting, or if you're just a nerd like me that likes to follow the dev scene, because it just shows what could be done. And I also like to see what could have been done should this game have been ported to these other consoles. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, even just a little bit, start by scrolling through and reading Alex's post, and then maybe check out MVG's video and some of the other info out there. And of course, you could also even go straight to the GitHub and see exactly which platform you would like to mess around with uh, that it has already had a port started. So very exciting project, absolutely worth your time looking into, even if you're just a little bit into dev stuff. But I just also wanted to make sure that no one put... Uh, accidentally put pressure on any of these devs expecting a perfect port tomorrow. This stuff takes time, and it might not ever happen depending on the console, but I still think it's amazing. This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLC PCB, and this week I want to talk about how to order a stencil along with your PCB order. So first, why would you want a stencil? Well, if you have a PCB with a lot of surface mount components on it, manually soldering each component is a giant pain and takes a lot of time. So if you have a reflow oven or if you're really good with a hot air rework station, you could use a stencil to drag solder paste across just the SMD pads, use tweezers to place your components individually, and then just use heat to stick them to the board. Now, how to do that would require an entirely separate video, but if you know that that's something you want to do and if that would make your life easier, 
All you have to do is drag your Gerber file the same exact way you normally would into JLC PCB's website, and then select all of your options and scroll down to the bottom to select a stencil. Then if you want, you could also say if you want just the top or bottom of the PCB, or if you want one stencil for each, which of course would add a little cost because it's making two different stencils, but that's all you have to do. Also, if you're like me and you've placed a PCB order, but then forgot to make a stencil with that, you could also just have only a stencil made for you. The options are all the same as if you had added it along with the PCB. You just have to select top, bottom, or both, or one or two stencils. Also, while this does affect shipping, JLC PCB offers many different shipping options, ranging from incredibly affordable to expensive, but arrives very quickly. So absolutely, whatever shipping options for your budget, wherever it is that you're located. I'm showing options for both US and Canada here, and shipping's never going to be a problem with JLC PCB. So that's it for this time, but check out my other JLC PCB segments and previous weekly roundups for more info on how to order PCBs, how to order PCB assembly, and more info on the company. I recently updated and reposted a guide that shows you how to get lossless captures from OBS. And I want to make sure I'm clear that this guide is aimed towards people doing video analysis or comparisons, and I am not implying that everybody needs to use lossless compression al algorithms for their captures. That is absolutely not necessary if you're just streaming or if you just want to make a fun video with some game footage in it. And in fact, I'm going to have a whole other series on how to get started as cheap and easy as possible for streaming. But if you want to know the answers to that now, just check out Epos Fox's channel. Uh, absolutely everything you could need there, a wealth of information. But this and the stuff that I do is really focused on other content creators and specifically people who are doing things like comparing two scalers or comparing two versions of a game. Because I have seen many times over the years people pointing out things that are they think are wrong with the scaler or the game, but they're actually pointing out things that are the side effect of an improperly captured video, whether it's hardware or software. And that's what stuff like this is for. And I had used OBS for a while, and then it just stopped working, and I couldn't figure out why. And I thought it was a Windows 10 random update, but it turns out that Datapath updated one of their drivers for the Vision series, and those capture cards wouldn't look right if you used OBS with the previous settings. So I had taken the guide down, but once I learned about that and the RGB Easy plugin that someone created, I went back and took another look and worked with the person who helped me the first time, Yoshiyuki Blade, to pre-configure an OBS uh, installation that's portable with all of this ready to go. So that's the guide. So if you want to take your existing installation and just add it and change it yourself, you could do that. If you want to download the portable build, you could do that too. I would recommend that because I have four or five portable builds of OBS so that I don't have to worry about global settings. Because my biggest complaint about OBS for stuff like this is whenever you need to change your capture settings, there's like four different places and 10 different things you have to change. So I like keeping it uniform so that when I know I need uncompressed or lossless captures, I just go to one build. If I'm just doing shots like this, I could use another one. So that's there if you want it. Uh, I also want to give a very quick rundown of the state of what I've found for capture software. Um, OBS is great if that's what you're used to. Uh, it's especially good if that's what you're used to. But if you're stuck using the UT Video plugin, which is fine, but it's kind of a pain to edit in Premiere. Um, so if there is another option, I'm going to try to 
to get to another guide for that. More on that in a second. Amarec 310 is awesome when it works. Uh, on Windows 7, I've had a lot more stable, or a lot more luck with a stable capture, except sometimes it reverses the image, and I've had a lot of people say, try this, that, and the other thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So if Amarec works for you, great. Windows 10, I've had a nightmare of problems, where it'll get two good captures, and then every capture after it will be at like five frames a second. So use that, you know, if it works for you, great. In Virtual Dub 2, I've also had excellent luck with, but one incredibly horrible problem in that sometimes the audio won't capture at the same rate as the video because of all the weird odd timings of the retro stuff that we use. So it will be off by a lot. Like if you have a one minute video, suddenly you'll have 30 seconds of audio. And as you listen to the audio, it'll speed up and get higher in pitch. So that's another one where if it works for you, cool, but none of these are perfect solutions. I would absolutely love to see one dedicated piece of software that has easy settings because you don't need to spread out 10 different settings across all these different places, just everything right where you need it. And I know that's an insane amount of work. So uh, if there's any way to possibly figure this out, you know, I, I don't think it's a good thing to be able to tell content creators that, hey, we want to see your new videos, we want to see your comparisons, but try these three different pieces of software, each with their own downsides to them, and hope for the best. Uh, so I'd love to see a version of OBS that maybe could do like FreeSync or something, so just whatever the, the frame rate coming in is, it records at that. And I'd also love to see an easy way to switch codecs, because I have checked some of those different things that you could buy, or uh, the different plugins you could install that allow you to do like ProRes captures, but I have not had good luck with those. The best luck I had by far was just with uh, the configuration that Yoshiyuki Blade showed me from this. So at the very least, if you're an OBS expert, maybe help us out, find one uh, or, or pre-configure a portable version that I could do lossless captures with different types of codecs. I have had the best luck with the Lagerith codec, but a lot of people say that there's some issues with it, but that's just my experience. Either way, all of the stuff that you see here is not my ideas. They're all my testing, but they're all uh, based on results from some amazing people across the community who are experts in this. So I just want to end on that note in that please don't think that I'm trying to say that my methods are the only way to go. It's not my method. It is all these amazing people that I'm just sucking all the information I can from every one of them and trying to put it in an easy to follow guide where you don't need to be an expert in video codecs to understand. You can just click on a couple of things and then show how you could get all of the results verified. I'll have a ton more guides and videos on this soon, but the one thing I really need before I get to those is a reliable software way to do it. So, um, you know, see whatever. If anybody has any ideas, I'm all ears. If you're an OBS expert, please try to help with plugins. Uh, and maybe I'll reach out to the OBS team again. They've been awesome. I, I support them on Patreon. And I did ask permission if it's okay to host this portable build on there. And the answer I got was I did not change anything. I just changed settings. I didn't change their code. So I don't have to do anything like repost a fork because there isn't a fork. And I didn't rename it or try to call it Bob BS or something like that. So they said because of that, it falls under their terms and I'm able to host the portable mode. If that ever changes, I'll gladly take it down. I like that team a lot and I certainly don't want to piss them off. But uh, if you can help in any way, please let us know because there's just, we need an easier way to do this. 
Louis Cesaron just rented and tested out an OLED-based Sony PVM monitor from 2011, and I was really curious to see the results, especially based on the test results of the first edition LCD PVMs, which were terrible for gaming. I'm sure they had a purpose in their release date, but gaming was definitely not it. So it was pretty cool to see that he tested that at about half a frame of lag or less, but not only that, it was across both progressive and interlaced signals. So it's kind of interesting to, to see because most of the TVs or monitors that I've tested that are flat panels process interlaced signals a lot slower as progressive. So being able to see 480i go through at about the same speed as 480p was very interesting. And he, once again, for the millionth time that we've all shown this, uh, proved that you don't really get more than a millisecond difference from 480p to 1080p. I still have people weekly losing their minds in the comments that I'm lying to them about 480p lag, and it's about a millisecond. Um, it's really not enough to say that running your games at 480p versus 1080p is going to be a difference. What does definitely make a difference is interlaced versus progressive in most cases, not this one, or frame rate. If you try to run anything at 30 frames per second, and I don't mean running like Sonic the Hedgehog, which is a 30 frame per second game, that's still outputting 60 hertz. I'm talking about like if you set your computer to 1080p 30 or 4K 30, that's going to add a lot more lag than 1080p or 4K 60. But other than that, um, it just kind of, Lewis's testing proves that it's the same on these OLEDs. And even though it's, you know, 11 years old, it apparently performed really, really well with very little motion blur and just kind of a good picture overall. So it's one of those things where I would never, ever, ever tell anybody to go out and buy an OLED PVM for gaming unless you stumbled across one that you happen to get for a very good price. I would recommend that people jump on those LG OLEDs because unless you're using it as a computer monitor that's powered on 24-7, I've never had a problem with burn-in. I imagine you would if you'd left it on 24-7 as a PC monitor. But there's also two models available that are fairly priced. They're not cheap. You know, I have a $250 TV that performs fine. Uh, these are 800 or 1100 for the smallest 48 inch, but that's a 4k 60 OLED and a 4k 120 OLED. So if you were looking for a 48 inch 120 Hertz OLED gaming monitor that you just weren't going to leave on 24 seven, it's a lot of money at 1100 bucks, but I doubt you're going to get much better for that price range. And I think that's kind of the important thing. So please check out Lewis's video if you want to see more info on all the things that he found. Um, I, I was certainly interested in it, even though I have no desire to hunt down an OLED because uh, an OLED PVM, because they're generally going to be smaller and they'd probably be hard to find. But if you happen to stumble across one, I have heard that some of those models use very, very high quality panels. So technically you might be able to get a slightly better picture than a brand new LG OLED, but I'm, I'm sticking with mine. Mine's only a 2016 and I still love it and think it's awesome. And I've seen the newer ones and they're even better. So if you want to get fired up about display technology, check out this video from Lewis uh, and check out the links to the different OLEDs because they're pretty awesome. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions just did a review on an all metal case for the Game Boy Color that turns it into a Game Boy pocket sized shell. So basically you take out the guts from your Game Boy Color, you add a new IPS screen, and then you put it in this new case, and the feel and look is that of a Game Boy Pocket, which Tito says it's his favorite 
from all of that form factor Game Boy. And I only had one for a very short period of time, but I really agree that it's an excellent form factor for those. So if you're into all of these very cool handheld mods, I mean, you should be subscribed to Tito anyway, but this is an interesting one because I've always liked the feel of the metal shells. They are a little heavier um, and not they're not for everybody, but it's definitely unique and worth looking into. And I also think that changing the form factor of something like this is a pretty cool option as well. So obviously Tito goes through all, all the installations, the pros and cons and everything else. Um, and there are links to get it right here if you're interested yourself. But I just thought this was a very cool install. And it was one of those things that it might be easy to overlook and just like, oh, another case for the Game Boy. But it's not. It's definitely different. And I'd like to see more um, form factor changing type cases just for the heck of it. I mean, because of the board layout, I don't think you'd be able to do like a vertically oriented game gear, but you would probably be able to do something a little bit different with the Game Boy Advance. Uh, I've already seen the SPs have those cases where they get stacked up vertically. That was very comfortable and pretty cool as well. So I definitely think there's a market for it, and I hope more people jump on board and have their own creations. And of course, I'm sure we could rely on Tito to, to tell us all which ones are the best and which ones are worth our time. Holy crap, I am so excited that I finally get to talk about RetroNAS, a free open source piece of software created by Dan Mons that runs on any Debian-based Linux installation. And while you could use any hardware you'd like, it's recommended that it has a gigabit Ethernet port and either a USB 3 or a SATA port or, or both, depending on the device. But other than that, you could pretty much use anything, including a Raspberry Pi. And even if you don't have a Pi 4, because they're out of stock like everything else, you could start on an older device and move on to a newer one. And if you're using a Pi, you could just swap the SD card and the hard drive over. You don't need to do anything else. So it is a pretty awesome software package. And I think I did an okay job in the introduction video, but I did want to mention a few things here. Now, I did an interview with Dan where we discussed all of this stuff in a podcast, and I think we dug into a lot of things that might help clarify things for people. So please check that out. As always, with all of these audio-only podcasts, they're available everywhere you could find audio podcasts. I don't discriminate. If somebody hosts a podcast, it's there. And that's, that's all I really care about, just as many people to get these as possible. So whatever's the easiest way for you to watch or listen, definitely check that out to hear more directly from Dan. And I did an interview with him a couple years ago with a very silly thumbnail that I should probably update. That really did make me laugh because I'm a dork that laughs at my own jokes sometimes. But it was a, a fun interview the first time if you want to learn more about Dan and the things that he's worked on and his crazy CRT and arcade collection and all that stuff. But back to RetroNAS, I did want to take a moment to explain some of the things that were either uh, confused, cost of confusion, or just things that people wanted more info on. I'll start with something that I, I thought I was clear about in the video, but maybe people didn't make it that far into the video before commenting or something, but this is not just a network share. I mean, it kind of is if that's what you're looking for, but the difference between running RetroNAS, NAS meaning network attached storage, versus just running any kind of NAS or network share is that you get all of the different protocols that are required for a lot of older things that don't run on newer protocols, plus proxies for older computers to connect to the internet, sim links, um, just a bunch of stuff that would really make most people's lives easier. I think who is RetroNAS for 
is almost anybody in retro gaming with multiple devices that wants an easier way to do ROM collections and other things, I think a much easier answer is who is retro NAS not for? And if you have all original consoles and all original games and maybe a mister with a USB hard drive or a big micro SD card and that's it, then yeah, then it's probably not for you. Just stick with your storage. And I mean that respectfully and with love. I'm not talking down to anybody. I'm just saying, no, you probably wouldn't benefit at all. But most other people should give the intro video a shot. Now, to clarify some of the things, the, the number one question we got was, is there a Docker available for my personal NAS that I have at home? And the answer is no, but there are some workarounds and we're hoping other people will jump in and contribute. So if you're running something like an Unraid server or anything that could run a VM, not Linux on Windows, but VirtualBox or just an Unraid VM, you could load up Debian Linux, follow Dan's instructions and be able to get Unraid or uh, get RetroNAS running that way on Unraid or any other system like this. You would just have to create a share on your existing array that, you know, maybe call it RetroNAS or something, map that to RetroNAS and you're good to go. And the good thing about that, especially if you're running something like Unraid, if there's ever an easier way to do that, I know I spoke to Ed Space Invader 1 and he's uh, considering looking into a Docker that's essentially a VM, but in a Docker for all the right nerd reasons that I'm not quite smart enough to understand. Uh, but even if that ever gets upgraded to it, so, you know, a, a nicer interface through Unraid, all of your ROMs and all of your collection don't get touched. You can just delete the other VM and then load up this Docker and that's it. Now, obviously, you don't want to do that if you've created a drive inside your VM, but you wouldn't want to do that for this. You want to create a folder on your existing array. Uh, and if you do it right, it's a very easy upgrade. We're talking I don't know, maybe a half hour if you're, you know drinking a, a beer and taking your time, clicking with one finger at a time. Uh, but it, I've messed around with this a lot and it does seem pretty easy. So that part, if you have a device that runs a VM, once again, not Linux on Windows, but VirtualBox, something built into your Linux server, that's an easy workaround for right now. But things like a Synology NAS that need a Docker that don't have the ability to run a VM, uh, or at least through a GUI where you could set it up yourself, that's where we need other people to help. So if you have any of those devices and you're good with Linux and you understand what a Docker is, how it works, and most importantly, you understand that there's a lot of protocols that a standard NAS won't be running that will be passing through this Docker. If you could make all of that work, please do and please share because this is a free open source project and I want more people to use it. And if you already have like a Synology NAS with five drives in it, there's no reason to do anything else. Although you could attach a Raspberry Pi to that and then just map RetroNAS to the share on your Synology. So that, that might actually be something that might be worthwhile as a short-term solution if you already have a Pi laying around and you want to try this out. But other than that, I think we just need more people to jump on board and kind of help out with this. Uh, of course, we do need more people to fix some of the other things. Like, I think the TUI, this sort of GUI, is fine. But I think a lot of people would really prefer a web-based version of it. So just something right through a browser. So that would be really cool. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's uh, that's going to be out soon as a result. I talked about some of the things in the intro video. I just received the parts, so I'll probably start testing by the end of the week. 
And I do want to do a couple more videos on this. Uh, sorry if it gets annoying to people, but I just really think that tutorials and stuff to help people get started is going to not nearly be as fun or exciting a video to watch as like a new product reveal or like some of the comparison stuff I do. But I think in the long run, it'll benefit people more. And the one I really want to do a video on soon is take any busted ass old laptop with a broken screen that barely even boots and turn that into RetroNAS because the thing I love most about this is that it's free and now not only do you not have to possibly buy new hardware, you could take something that was totally junk and you maybe you had it in a pile to bring it to a recycling center to get stripped. Now you could reuse that piece of hardware. And if it's a laptop, it's low powered. So you're not even jacking up your electric bill with it if it's running 24-7. So I will get back on all of those things. I'll have a bunch more content, but please start with the intro video. Uh, start with the interview with Dan. And of course, go through the GitHub uh, in the wiki that Dan wrote and just get started and have at it. Because I have a feeling this thing is going to grow fast and evolve pretty quickly. And if you're an early adopter, it's not one of those things where you're going to have to erase everything and start from scratch. The most time-consuming part by far far is curating your ROM collection and get everything the way you want it. And that will not change. Or if it does, like if you upgrade to a big fancy server, you just have to copy them over, but keep the same file structure. You don't have to go through all that work to curate all the ROMs. So very excited that we get to talk about this. And I really hope it just becomes a normal part of our retro conversations. Lou from Lou's Retrosource has us covered once again for weekly Mr. Updates. And as always, if you want all of the detailed info, please check out Lou's video. But I'm just going to scroll through real quick and only add my thoughts where I think it's relevant or feel like rambling. But anyway, there's more updates to the Saturn and PlayStation cores. I watched the video that SRG320 posted, and it was so cool to see Radiant Silver Gun looking that good on the Mr. So... Big things for both of those mammoth platforms, Saturn and PlayStation 1. Also, Hotego's been busy as usual. There's been some more debugging for Sega System 16. He's about halfway through the Neo Geo Pocket CPU core, or just the CPU part of the core. So lots of progress there. Um, also, I guess full schematics were found for the game Track and Field, which will make reverse engineering a little easier. It's still incredibly hard, but you know anything like that helps. Also, Lewis from Zez Retro just did an interview with Porkshop Express, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it because I've been following Lewis for a while now, and I always really enjoy his conversations. And I've been working with Pork and has covered his work for years now. I think I've covered almost every one of his products, and I'm a, a big fan of them as well. So uh, really looking forward to hearing them have a conversation and see what they talk about. Um, and also, Pork had teased on Twitter a new I.O. board that's designed for use with dual SD RAM. So the very short overview is it's speculated that some future cores might require two RAM modules, not a size issue, but the, a bus issue. So you need two running at the same time. The problem with that is the I.O. board, the thing that gets you analog video out, plugs into one of those ports. So anybody that's ever seen the post on direct output uh, knows that you could do HDMI to RGB right from there. You could even stream with that. So you just need an HDMI splitter, send one to your capture card, and then just compensate for the size, send the other to your HDMI to VGA converter, and you can get SCART out that way. So there's already a decent solution. And the one that Pork's working on looks to be more of an integrated thing with a switch, uh, an easy switch just between analog and digital, and composite video output. 
So uh, respectfully, I really hope that this project kind of adds a lot more uh, to what you could do or features. Because while I do think composite video is awesome, you could kind of do that as an external module. So hopefully there's some more options in this and some more features built in. But either way, I love to see different projects come out and I, I love to see different people's takes on it. So the good news is, regardless of what anybody else comes out with, you could always just use direct out and even a splitter if you need two RAM modules. But it's not looking like that anytime soon. It looks like the Saturn and PlayStation cores should be okay on one. Um, but I don't think that's set in stone yet. So at least there's other solutions out there. Also, Antonia Valena has a few other Mr. Setups with Mr. Customization Setups with Consolidated MT32 Pies. So that's basically when you want to use a Pi Zero to emulate just one of the audio modules and have that connected through the Mr. It's very cool stuff. There was a, a, been a couple of videos out on it. Um, and they're also selling fully assembled MT32 Pi kits. So if you're interested in any of that, please check out Lou's video and of course the links to Antonio and then the Tindy page. And some other random Mr. updates. The Coco 3 core, Color Computer 3, has been uh, got an update that now supports memory sizes up to 16 megabytes. The Einstein TC101 core has updated support to its successor, the Einstein 256. And of course, Modern Vintage Gamer just posted an awesome video promoting and highlighting Mr. Uh, it is exactly what you would expect, and he does what he does best. He goes into some technical detail, but then explains it and demos it in a way that anybody could understand. I thought it was a great video, and uh, the only thing I wanted to add that I, I think I might have been a confusion is the price that MVG talked about at the end was in reference to the part shortage and unfortunate scalping and things that have been going on. So the DE10 Nano Kit, the main brains of the Mister, the FPGA itself that it runs off of, has gone out of stock and people have been scalping those and even kind of reputable resellers had jacked the price up anyway. And I don't think that's anybody's fault. I think that's just supply chain stuff. I don't, I wouldn't consider that part of it scalping. So whereas a full kit that might have cost you 400 bucks last year with an IO board and everything you need, that might be a lot more money now. And if you want one pre-configured and pre-assembled, including the price hikes, yeah, I mean, I've seen them myself going for 700 bucks on eBay for something legit, not some, you know, not some scumbag trying to sell you ROMs for an uptake, like a legitimate, I took the time to buy and assemble and configure a mister, you add your own ROMs, you know, and here's my price, you know, the price is up to you, but I have seen them go high. So that's what MVG was referring to. If the DE10 was still in stock, you could get started for definitely under 300 bucks and have a really great setup and a really good experience. If you want fully featured with JAMA out or also RGB or depending on the setup, maybe both, uh, there's a whole bunch of other options out there that, yeah, it could start to get pricey, but the problem is just the part shortage and getting a DE10 and the stuff to go with it. So I genuinely don't know if people just misunderstood what he said or if they're just typical loser trolls looking for attention. I, I don't know. I'm trying to hope for the best and try to address an actual problem and not just trolls. But uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that. That's where the price came from. And right now, it, it sucks 
for all hardware. It's nobody's fault. It's no, you know, you can't blame a company or a project. And it's so frustrating to see people come after creators because they're talking about it. Oh, you're a piece of shit. Why would you talk about Mr. Now when you can't even get a DE10? You know how many times I see that in the comments? Like, if you want to get yourself banned, that's the easiest way to do it. And it's just, I just wanted to make sure I was hopefully addressing people that may have just honestly misunderstood and didn't realize that the prices had changed that much because of lack of parts. But if, you know, if and when things do kind of get better, it first would require major chips to come back in stock everywhere and then everybody to catch up. So when that happens, it'll still be a project that's not cheap. I mean, none of this stuff is free, except retro NAS, huh? but, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it's cost effective for what you get. So I just wanted to put my price thoughts in there because I just want to make sure people are getting the right message and they're not getting accidentally skewed by trolls or anything like that. So, uh, as always, thanks so much to Lou for doing these. If you want more info on all of the things that I just very quickly skimmed over, please check out his video and subscribe to his channel because it's really awesome just having a lot of these updates all in one spot so you don't have to go through and read all of the different forums and, and kind of pick it together yourself. So at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that I wanted to bring on more contributors, but I didn't want to just drop that in at the beginning. I wanted to explain exactly what it is that I wanted to accomplish and who I was looking for. And one of my major goals for this year is highlighting more content creators in the scene, because I've tried my absolute best to highlight as many projects and developers as possible. And I've never intended to exclude content creators. It's just, I didn't do as good of a job as I could have. And I want that all to change. And while this is a very cheesy, but 100% accurate example, I've never once introduced myself as RetroRGB. I'm always introducing myself as Bob from RetroRGB because to me, the site was always designed to highlight everybody. Even when it was just Cousin Scott and I working on it, I still knew that a lot of the knowledge that I was getting, even though I did my own research and my own testing, was still a result of being the middleman siphoning all of this awesome info from all of these amazing people that I've learned from and just trying to get it out into one place. So I'd like to take this opportunity to really push forward in highlighting more content creators. And if you're somebody that just wants to occasionally write a post or two and you're not really a content creator, that's cool too. But the other focus that I want is maybe you're, here's just a random example. Let's say you're a YouTuber that's just looking to get your name out there a little bit more. And maybe you do stuff that's very cool, but not a typical fit for retro RGB. So maybe you do pickup videos and room tours and stuff like that, which I love, by the way. Zero disrespect towards that. Um, but you also want to start working on other stuff. So maybe you do a very quick video on a firmware update for a new product or something else that's coming out, and then just do a quick blurb. And I do like the format that I've been sticking to and like just the facts at the top, the links, and then your thoughts below. And of course the video up top, if it's a video being highlighted. And I kind of feel like we might all be able to help each other out because even if people might not notice right away, people will absolutely start to see new content creators come in. And if they like your videos and like your writing, you probably will earn a subscriber out of that and then get to grow the things that you normally do too. Honestly, though, I really, anybody is welcome who has a passion for this stuff, but I do want to make sure to highlight more of the amazing content creators that are already out there because there are so many good people that just aren't getting noticed and they absolutely should. And it sucks because maybe they don't do the stupid 
face and their thumbnails. And that's the only reason that their channel isn't getting picked up. I want to change that. I want to try highlighting all as many good people as I can. And, you know, I, I mentioned good people and I know everybody hates when I say anything negative, but life isn't a hundred percent positive and not everybody is awesome. And I've heard so many times I've been accused of being an elitist gatekeeper, but no one who's ever worked with me has called me that. It's only people who haven't. And honestly, whether you're offended by this or not, if you are a liar, a thief, or somebody that is intentionally on repeated basis gone out to harm others, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Everybody makes mistakes. I, I don't I don't like seeing people who make one mistake get harped on. It's not fair at all. The people I'm referring to are intentional repeat offenders, and they're not welcome, and they'll never be welcome as long as I'm even a slight part of this. So criteria, my gatekeeping for this, uh, are you a person that just tries their best and could do a legible post of a paragraph with some links? That's the, you could call that gatekeeping. I call that quality control, but if you want to call me a gatekeeper for that, that's a hundred percent fine. I think every reasonable person would be all right with that too. So that's it. That's the only prerequisite. I don't care about anything else. If you love the stuff that we do, you want to help highlight the amazing projects and developers in the scene while at the same time, uh, getting your own channel and your own work promoted by default, just by being a big part of this, please, please step up to the plate. I will admit that some of this is also selfish and that I am just out of minutes. I just, now that I'm starting to focus a lot of work on uh, projects to help other creators and other stuff that I'm working on, I just don't have time to write some of the other posts that I wanted to. And a lot of stuff has been missed and fallen on the wayside, which sucks. Um, I do also want to give a shout out to all of the other contributors. They're all wonderful. I appreciate the hell out of them so much, but they're all people with jobs and lives and families. And they also are in a situation where they can't just drop what they're doing to write, you know, a post a day and they get here when they can. And they focus, which I love by the way, either on time, uh, time sensitive things or things that they're experts in. And that's another thing that I would love to bring to the table is more expertise and stuff that I just don't have. Cause I love to hear other people's perspectives on things. And especially when they really have something to add to a topic that I know about, but I don't know as much as they do. So I didn't mean for this to be a five minute ramble. I just wanted to make my intentions clear. And if you decide that you don't like me or what I'm trying to do, I just hope that you decide that because of what I really mean and not because I explained myself wrong or something. So, uh, you know, I tend to piss a bunch of people off every time I'm open, honest, and transparent, but I mean, I, I guess that's just who I am. So if you're looking to, to grow your channel and to get your voice out there and you just are somewhat easy to work with and want to give it a try, please let me know. And there's no requirements or anything you could do one post and decide it's boring and never post again and there will be nothing but appreciation and love from me that's totally cool give it a try and see what happens but anyway I, I just hope to see the scene grow so much more there's so many amazing creators out there that I really really want to highlight and I mean what better way to do that than than help highlight yourself well, that's it for this time. I did want to mention my setup real quick for anybody that cares, but if you don't, please turn this off. I don't want to waste anybody's time. But um, So I have a few changes this week. Obviously, I, I moved things to so the CRT walls behind me. I think I figured out how to mount my camera here. I, I'm waiting on a couple other parts because it's not quite the way I want it, so the angle will change by the time I get everything done. But 
so far so good. The new PC has been running well. Um, my buddy Arturo let me borrow an amazing capture card that I'm using for the first time right now that I'm going to be doing some testing and a review of. So hopefully that'll get things better. Um, I think I like this. I think it's going to stay this way. I think my workflow is probably going to change a little bit, but I'm still unpacking, believe it or not. Like I still have... 25 boxes over there I got to figure out what to do with and I want to get as streamlined as a setup as I had in New York City just you know actual room to stick my arms out so the only downside I think of this setup uh, unless somebody finds a mistake is that I'm in front of a window now which means as you've seen in this podcast the lighting changed the color temperature changed um, sometimes I'm squinty because the sun's right in my eye and other times you know I'm bug-eyed because it's dark and for some reason i don't know if it's the capture card how close i'm standing the angle but my eyebrows look huge all of a sudden do they always look this big (laughs) but yeah so i just wanted to talk about that first for anybody who's just a nerd and curious like me or if you're another content creator that sees a mistake that i didn't pick up on which so many people have over the years and i just love it and i'm so appreciative when people tell me because sometimes i just miss stuff sometimes it's preference and i just choose something different but I still want to hear your thoughts. So if if I mess something up, uh, anything's off, anything's weird, please let me know. Nothing I could do about the the color temperature of the sunlight other than when I'm doing the fancier videos, I'll make sure to block out the window and I'll probably even use a green screen or something just to make sure everything's the correct color temperature. But for the weeklies, I love it being more laid back and just talking to the camera like this. So I'm all ears if you have any thoughts. But uh, anyway, as always, thank you to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to people who support in any way possible because it is you who's keeping this channel all of the behind the scenes research that you're now starting to see come out the videos, the podcast, the website and everything else alive. So thank you all so much and I'll see you soon.